how beautiful it is to sing, how great is our God. It's not always easy to sing a song like that, though, when you're in the midst of, of what seemed like dark days. You know, Pastor David prayed about things going on out in the world. He just opened the newspapers or, well, who reads newspapers anymore? Nobody, huh? <laughs> Open your phones. Challenges within, uh, struggles. I, I just, I was moved just a moment ago to look over and, and see Ryan, who is dealing with his brain tumor, praising God. And that's, that's when it, that's when the rubber hits the road, right? When you can stand in such a moment and say, how great is my God, our God. So we're going to look at our great God this morning, and we're going to study Matthew 25, 1 through 13. And I got a little ahead of myself and didn't read the text yet, but you can remain seated. It's not a law that we have to stand. We usually stand when we read the text, but uh, let's just stay seated, and I'll read it, and then we'll be looking today at the parable of the ten virgins. Here's the Word of God, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. We're back in Matthew after a little hiatus, and this is the 103rd sermon in Matthew so far, and we're going to, Lord willing, take this through to the end of this year, all the way to December 31st. So, verse 1, Matthew 25, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins, who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Verse 5, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We were last in Matthew going through several weeks of the Olivet Discourse where we ended chapter 24, where we were talking about focusing on the return of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has promised to return and He is coming again. No doubt about it. And Jesus wanted to drive home the, the truth and the necessity of grasping that truth and believing that truth with a parable at the end of chapter 24 where he talked about faithful servants versus wicked servants. You might remember the uh, teaching that Jesus gave was, no one knows when I'm returning, so stay awake. That was the call. Stay watchful, stay ready, stay awake, be ready 
And then he told this story, though, about how the master, it was a small parable of how the master had gone away and he was delaying his return. And there was a faithful servant who, who stayed steady, who stayed on top of things, who, who expected his master to return. And so he, he was about the, doing the business that he was supposed to be doing. And his master came back and blessed him. But there was a wicked servant, it says, who his master was taking too much time. He was delaying, and, and he starts thinking, oh, it's taking way too long. He's, is he ever really coming back? And he just started doing all these horrible things. Matthew 25 really is a, a, a very similar telling of such a parable. It's another parable that's based on the same principle. And it's a story that's meant to contrast what it looks like to be wise versus what it looks like to be foolish when it comes to living in light of the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is important for us to grasp because it's been a couple thousand years. And if folks at this time or in the early centuries might have been concerned about delay, if people in Peter's day were concerned about it, like, what is he coming back or not? Is, is he slack about his promises? Does he not mean it? And Peter had to remind the people, like, no, he's not slack concerning his promises. He is coming in. He's patient with you. And it can be very easy to take something like the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ, and to, 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 to minimize it because it seems so far away. The promise was so long ago. Jesus will not let us stand in ignorance nor apathy. He's going to challenge us not only in this passage, but in the coming weeks. Let me just be open with you. The next few weeks are going to be challenging for us as a church because these, chapter 25 is hard to swallow. It pricks us in all the right places. It opens our understanding to things that we might have fallen asleep too long ago. The challenge of readiness, which is another word, if you will, for faithfulness, or another word is just preparedness, being prepared, being faithful, being ready when Christ returns. That is difficult in a society that's dominated by a desire for immediacy, isn't it? Too often the Christian life is defined not by the Scriptures, but by the, the world, which has this unending appetite for the instant. Constant striving for progress and, and for highs, living on the mountaintops of life and, and another high, and avoiding the lows, doing everything we can to get away from the lows, or God forbid, the mundane. But Christian discipleship is, in the words of Andrew Peters, excuse me, Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. And this is why we get admonitions all throughout Scripture, things like Galatians 6, 9, that tells us this, let us not grow weary of doing good. Why do you think I would need to be told to not grow tired of doing good? Because I grow tired <laughs> of doing good. It's easy to do. You grow tired of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. Why? For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's this constant 
admonition, encouragement in scriptures. Keep going. Don't give up. Don't, I know you're tired. Don't stop. Don't stop trusting him. Don't stop serving him. There's, there's this stick to that's to be a part of the Christian life in between his first coming and his second coming. And we as believers in him can regularly grow lackadaisical, apathetic, lazy, and there's danger there, as we see in today's parable. This in-between that we live in, the waiting for his return. It's in some senses the in-between and life in the in the in-between and learning to live the Christian life in between is like is like our marriages. After the initial season of of romance and wonder and amazingness and mountaintop highs, what do you do when you come back into everyday mundane reality of life? Get up Monday morning and go to work and and, and diapers to change and and floors to clean and and houses to vacuum and and chores to run and and a million other things on our to-do list that constantly haunt us. What do you do when the mundane of life hits? Scripture teaches us that mature love settles into the long haul of life's ups and downs and mundane and loves to the end. That's what the marriage vows are all about. See, the difficulty, again, is that we live in this age of immediacy. We're a microwave culture. We want things now. We want, we, we've lost the, the discipline and, and wonder of faith for endurance, a faith that lasts. And the best things in life often require the most discipline, the most effort, the, the most, and are the most costly And yet, think about this, there are multi-billion dollar industries designed around our desire to shortcut everything, (laughs) right? We want it quicker. I was thinking about the other day, I got an iPhone. I have an an old iPhone 11. Can you believe how old this is, right? The new one's coming out the 15, and I'm kind of like, ooh. (laughs) I'm like a tech junkie in one sense. But I was... I've been messing with my phone, and it, it's, it like took an extra seven seconds to open up a website the other day. Seven seconds! How slow it's getting, right? And I had to step back and, and think, have I lost my mind, Lord? Am I letting the culture and society grab my mind too much? This is why in our society, for instance, divorce becomes an option for so many people when, when things become difficult in marriage. The moment things become difficult, we, we start thinking about how can I get out? How can I get away from this pain, from this pressure? There's a constant allure of, of the new. There, there's a constant growing boredom with life, a boredom with the old, and an unwillingness to discipline ourselves towards the goals of the things that matter the most in life. And Scripture calls us to faithful living. Faithfulness, I believe, is another description of what we could call pursuing holiness. 
Holiness is this wholehearted commitment to God, to, to His plans, to His purposes, to His character, to His person, to His mission. And Jesus doesn't save us apart from demanding total authority in our lives, total loyalty to who He is and to what He's doing. He doesn't save us and say, okay, now you can still be in control and do whatever you want. He's Savior and He's Lord. And we don't have the right, we've been bought with a price, we don't have the right to ourselves, Christian. And here's where it becomes sobering, what we're going to study today. And there's a long introduction, I know. But there's going to be a day when the age of grace will end. Christ will return. And that tells us some things. That tells us history is going somewhere. It's not randomly going somewhere. It's being taken somewhere by a sovereign God. It means that He will return, and that means there will be ultimate victory over evil, all evil. Social, cosmic, personal, moral, all of it, Jesus is victorious. Final judgment is coming. And it will be decisive, and it will bring about separation. So there's an urgency to this parable. There's an urgency to this chapter. There's an urgency for us to understand that Jesus is coming again. There's no promise in Scripture given to us that we can get it right after death. This idea of purgatory or anything like that is not found anywhere in the Scriptures. And so it's crucial. It's crucial that we eagerly meditate on, think about, and expect the return of Jesus Christ. Because time and time again, the Scripture teaches us the fact that our faithfulness, our, our dependability, if you will, depends on a commitment to Christ's return and how we do that matters. I think of... Um, how many 80s movies were made around the theme of this teenager whose parents went out of town and left him alone for the, for, for the weekend, right? And they're all similar stories about how craziness happens, wild parties are thrown, all these irresponsible things are done, and it's all driven by this fear of the parents coming home on Monday, and everything better be bright and fixed and clean again, Right? I think sometimes that's almost the way a lot of Christians try to live. I know he's coming back, but, and that scares me. And so I better fix everything, hurry, quick. That's not what, that's what I'm driving us to in this passage. It's, it's much more like a teenager who's left for the weekend who actually loves his parents or her parents and is excited about them coming home, and so he's not functioning out of fear of his parents' return. He's anticipating the joy at seeing his parents' face. That's the idea. That's what Paul felt, if you will. And in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, the apostle Paul writes these words to Timothy. He's about to die. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. 
and, my, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. I'm going to see him face to face. He's going to give me rewards. I can't believe it. It's so incredible. I can't wait to see him. And then he says, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. To all who can't wait to see him come. To all that can't wait to to see him face to face as he truly is. All true believers who set their heart on the return of Christ. who, Who embrace the great hope of the return of Christ will be fueled for perseverance by this essential element of perseverance. This is what John writes in his letter, 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And listen to this in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. There's this expectation, this hope of His appearing, and because of that hope and that expectation, I'm going to live a certain way. Not out of a fear of, oh, He's going to get me, but how, how do you respond to the greatest love? You return that love with a faithful life. There's a lot of Christians that seem to have their hope defined by culture. Right? Like, like I'm going to go buy a lottery ticket and hopefully I'm going to win a million dollars. That's cultural hope. You have just enough faith to spend a dollar. And you think there's a chance you might win, but you really don't believe it. I wonder how many, how many there are who profess Christ who are sitting in churches here or around the world today whose hope looks like that. That's not hope. That's not Christian. Christian hope is Romans 5, 5 hope. It's a hope that doesn't disappoint. And hope doesn't disappoint because it's the combination of expectation and desire. I, I desire to see Him as He is, and I expect to see Him as He is. That's Christian And it's that hope, it's Christian hope that plays into our sanctification and works itself out with this. Everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies Himself. That's what we do. It's how we live. Why? Because He's coming. Because I'm going to see Him. Not maybe, I will. So this is essential. These parables, this mindset, this understanding is essential. And listen to me clearly, if you're frustrated in your walk with Christ, if you're frustrated in in your life as a Christian, you you don't seem to have progress, you just, you seem dull with Him, I would argue that it's probably somehow directly connected to a misplaced expectancy and desire. 
a misplaced hope. You have not allowed the expectancy of Christ's return to thrill and captivate your heart. And you don't see him as the treasure that he truly is. For all he's worth. It's this expectancy of his return that creates faithful living. And your expectation when life gets frustrating and it seems like, man, I've been praying for this and and it hasn't happened or whatever, we get tripped up. But the truth is, the expectation in such thinking is not, I want to see Jesus, but it's what what Jesus, what you can do for me. You can be my little genie in a bottle and solve all my problems. That's why so many times professing Christians, they get tripped up with every setback, every pain, every trial, every temptation. Because deep down, we, people feel that Jesus just didn't come through for them. And when we think about the return of Christ and we think about how long it's been and how, who knows how long it's going to be, here's, I think, what the previous parable we went through in the end of chapter 24, it taught us that delay actually reveals character. It reveals what's actually inside of you. The crisis reveals our faithfulness or faithlessness. The crisis reveals our expectations. The crisis reveals where your hope is. And this is why Jesus issued warnings, for instance, the warning to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, where he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. He's talking to to the church. People think this way about you. You look this way, but you're dead. Wake up, is what Jesus tells the church. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You see the urgency? For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. When we don't put our hope in Christ and on his return, we will inevitably put it into something else. Our eyes will drift off to to, to false gods and and false idols and things that are going to draw us away from from true worship and, and true Christian living. Living in an age of of unfinished things where we put our hands to millions of of things and nothing satisfies and nothing's ever completed. Christ just doesn't seem to be enough. So we look for shortcuts and and we do everything we can, including self-medicating, everything we can to ignore the fact that, that one day every single one of us will stand before Him. Either when He returns or when you die. We don't like talking about death very much, do we? But the truth is, at least in my experience as a pastoring for the last several decades, there's probably at least one of us in this room within the next two years who will die. And in my experience, not many of us die peacefully. It's not fun. And if you don't have a foundation, 
Christ is not your foundation. We cannot bear that reality. And our society is masterful at pretending that it's not going to happen. But it will. And you will stand before God. And here's the question the parable is going to ask. Are you ready? Are you ready? Verse 1. Yes, we will get to the text. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. He's setting up the parable for us to understand. And really, that's the focus of it. The focus isn't really the number ten. Why the number ten? I mean, different scholars say different things. We don't really, it can be something Jesus picked. It could be some traditions say that 10 was the average number of the wedding party at, at the ancient Jewish weddings. And the, the way ancient Jewish weddings worked, you had a, it was a three-step process. You had the first step was engagement, and uh, that was done by dads. Fathers would come together and betroth their son and their daughter to one another. Excuse me, engage them together. Then would come step two, which would be the betrothal, which was the actual ceremony where promises were made. Then upward, you know, maybe a year or so later, so you have the engagement and then you have the betrothal, but then about a year or so later, then you have the actual marriage. And the marriage was, happened when the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time for his bride. And so here's the picture then. You have... Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is, is like. It's like ten young women, young virgin women, who are like in our culture, we would kind of look at them as bridesmaids. They're attending to the bride, and there's ten of them, and five of them are foolish, and five of them are wise. He's going to explain to them why they're foolish and why they're wise, but the point here is that, that all ten have a job appointed for them to do. They, they had a responsibility in this wedding, and which was a big deal, and, and, and they were to be ready when, when, to, to welcome the bridegroom when he would come. And they were to light their, their torches, their, their lamps, and they were shine the light when he would come and celebrate. That was their job. That was their calling. Be ready when he comes. When he comes, go out and welcome him in with your lamps. The lamps were the means that were appointed for their calling. That was their responsibility. Verse 3, for when the foolish took their lamps, this is why they were foolish, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And so it's a, it was a procession where the, the ten virgins would walk hear the announcement of the bridegroom coming, they would go out to meet him and light their lamps to light the way back into the house for the celebration of the wedding. You got five of them that are foolish and it says they had no, they had lamps but no oil. The other had lamps and some oil that was with them this extra supply. The foolish ones, Jesus says, don't take their, their calling, their responsibility to, to give light seriously. They neglect the only means by which they could do what they were called to do. 
they took no oil. No lamp, uh, lamps with no oil does nothing. Car with no gas does nothing. You say, well, there's electric cars. Ah, they're all weird anyway. So, Candles without a wick. Torches without fire. Light bulbs without electricity. It doesn't work. And I believe it's displaying to us what this outward form of religion with no internal power. They may have had the lamp, but they had nothing on the inside that could give life to the light. Verse 5 says, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Now, at this point, Ten, ten young women, they all look the same. Can't really tell any difference. They all have torches they're hanging on to. Five of them have a little extra oil. Five of them don't. But on the surface of things, they all look the same. And so the bridegroom is taking a little extra time. He's delaying. And so what happens? They become drowsy and they sleep which the Scripture's not uh, down on that here, okay? There's a call to stay awake and to be watchful here, but I want you to notice that all ten of them slept, even the wise ones. But the wise ones, the difference was they were prepared to act immediately when they were awakened. And I think Jesus is helping us understand here that it's not foolish to sleep. We're not uh, you know, we're not called to work 24-7. And, and I, I believe what he's meaning with this is the, the daily rhythms of life. That's a part of the Christian life. We work, we rest. We work hard, we rest well. We work, we rest. That's our calling. Blessed in Matthew 24, verse 45, Jesus said, Blessed is the servant whom his master finds doing his work when he comes. So all ten slept because sleep is certainly a normal part of the rhythm of every normal life, Christian or non-Christian. It's part of the pattern that God gives us, commands us to actually, to rest. And so here they ten fall asleep. Then the crisis hits. Verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Can you see it? The sudden awakening, of, oh, it's here, this is it, it's now, it's go time. And they all get up, verse 7, all those virgins rose, they trim their lamps. That's, a, that's another word to just say they're, they're starting to get it ready, right? They're making sure that their, their wick at the top that is soaked in the, in the oil so they can light it and it stays lit. And now the crisis begins to make the separation, but the crisis will divide the ready from the unready. Verse 8, and the foolish said to the wise who are trimming their lamps and getting them ready, and now they're all set to go, and the foolish say, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. <laughs> but the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy them for yourselves.
parables, usually you have to be careful with diving into breaking apart every aspect of a parable, especially in, in Scripture when Jesus teaches, because a lot of times things go way off on tangents that were not intended with the parable. So I don't want to do that here, but it is hard to overlook the, the emphasis that Scripture has on oil. Throughout the Old Covenant, throughout the Scriptures, there's this representation, for instance, in Zechariah 4, where you see this giant menorah, this giant lamp, and it's, it's fueled by two olive trees right next to each side of, of the lamps, and, and it means that it's representing life. It's representing the Spirit, ultimately representing the, the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the life-giving ministry, the, the, the healing ministry, the anointing ministry of the Holy Spirit Himself. And one of the things that, that marks a Christian is the Holy Spirit. If you... well. Don't take my word for it. Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That's the separator. The separator, notice, it's not the way things looked on the outside. It's what was going on on the inside. Did they have oil for their lamps or not? And so they ask, and what they ask is impossible. Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And listen, the, the fact that the five wise young women don't give them any isn't like somehow condoning selfishness. It's meant to teach the impossibility of a borrowed faith. There is no such thing. It's meant to show us the impossibility of borrowing the power of the Holy Spirit or, or borrowing obedience or borrowing faithfulness from someone else in the church. So they answer, there won't be enough for both of us. You go and buy your own oil. We can't have faith for you and for us. We can't have an, an inner vitality, a spiritual life for you and for us. We can't give you obedience and, and the faithfulness use of, use of God's appointed means. And if you neglect them in this life, in essence, their answer is saying we can't create them for you. Each one bears his own load. And so in desperation, they Foolish virgins who had wasted their time, who had wasted their opportunities, who had wasted their lives, ran for the impossible. Borrow some of your obedience. Borrow some of your life, some of your faithfulness with what they think is this going to be this, this great instant end time faith. What happened was the foolish, the five foolish girls were irresponsibly secure. They think other Christians are surely going to help them get what is necessary to get in. We can ride their coattails. And if and when the time comes, we'll just borrow from the prepared is their attitude. 
And listen, do we need church fellowship? Do we benefit and is it necessary for our spiritual lives and growth? Certainly it is. We, we need church fellowship. We need more mature believers around us in order to spur us on and help us persevere. But here Jesus is placing individual responsibility right in front of us. One commentator put it this way, now suddenly everything is terrifyingly individual. Don't count on other Christians' preparedness or or righteousness. You're on your own before the judgment throne. Verse 10, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. When that door is shut, it will not be opened again. And too many people are playing with a presumption they have time. It's been so long, got plenty. And the sobering words that Jesus says, the bridegroom says in this passage is, I do not know you. Jesus said similar words in Matthew 7 that we studied some time ago. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice they understand, at least from some type of perspective, that he is the Lord. They call him Lord. They profess him as Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. I don't know more sobering words in all of the Scripture. They did things in his name. They served in his name. And just like the five foolish girls who thought they could ride in on the backs of the saints, gentle Jesus, surely he's going to let us in. And yet the doors remain closed. Maybe they'll place blame on him. It's his fault, not mine. He came when I wasn't ready. He better let me in. Or perhaps they assume that that Jesus on Judgment Day is more like Jesus on Christmas Day. Harmless, not threatening, but oh no. On that day, too late, It's too bad. 
And Jesus will roar like a lion, not lie down like a lamb. The door will stay closed. Listen, there is blessed assurance. We sing about it, right? There is blessed assurance for the Christian. Prepared disciples can fall asleep each night without undue worry about Christ's judgment. But there is also an unblessed assurance where someone thinks that simply getting an invitation to the wedding and being asked to participate in it assures entrance to it. And haven't we already learned in studying Matthew that it's not enough just to find the treasure. You have to sell all to purchase the treasure. This is not justification by works. This is not, I better pull myself up by my bootstraps and get to work. But neither is this justification by dramatic conversion at the last minute. The salvation equation is never faith plus works. It's never teary-eyed profession of faith plus works. It's faith plus nothing. Faith plus nothing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But listen, true faith works. True justification, justification produces fruit. We sing the song, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Yes, yes, a thousand times yes. Absolutely, but listen to me. The cross of Christ is not a dead tree. It's a fruit tree. It changes you. It transforms you from the inside out. They didn't have enough oil. They didn't have any oil. And they were shut out. And so Jesus summarizes the whole of the parable with this powerful one sentence. Verse 13, he says, Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. One simple warning. Have your Christian life so focused on Him. And by focusing on Him, so driven and fueled by His grace in your works. That when you are actually surprised by His return, you'll be ready for His return. Be ready. Three very quick things to close. I just want you to take home with you. Three warnings to pay attention to in this wonderful, challenging parable. One, outward appearances can be deceiving. Outward appearances can be deceiving. So identification is not the same thing as identity. 
The ten all looked the same, didn't they? But they weren't the same, were they? And that can hold true even in the visible church. That you might think, well, because I'm sitting here in church today, I did my God thing, I punched the clock for God, and, and I earned something of His favor. And there's nothing further than the truth. God's favor cannot be earned. It's only given freely. And when you have received His favor, the response of worship and joy and fruitfulness, as Paul writes to the Galatians, the, the fruit of the Spirit that works itself out in our lives, the love, the joy, the, the peace, the, the patience, the self-control, the gentleness, the, the goodness, all of the things that God does, His work in us comes out through us. He gets all the glory. Secondly, the most important things can't be borrowed. Born again. That's a word that I think some people in our day and age, have, even Christians, have shied away from. I think it's fantastic words. I think born again should be the most beautiful words that you've ever heard in your life. Because it means you were dead and now you're alive. To be born again, oh, glory to God. And here's his point. You can't borrow someone else's born again. And I want to just say a quick word briefly. Who in here is between the ages of like 6 and 13? Slip your hand up. All right, I'm seeing you. I want you to hear me. Thank you. You are so blessed to be in church. You are so blessed to have Christian parents who love you enough to teach you the Word of God. But understand this. It has to become yours. You, you, you can't borrow your parents' oil when you stand in front of God. And so as they're teaching you and as they're training you and as they're bringing you up in the, the ways of God, as they open their Bibles with you and teach you, you can have a vibrant, real, flourishing, deep, living relationship with Jesus now. And I know that because I was where you were. I grew up in a church and, and, and I had a lot of friends who were like these five foolish girls who looked good on the outside, but they didn't last. But I, what I can tell you is that by grace, at six years old, far back as I can remember, I had life, I had oil. And I had a relationship with Christ. And I want you to have the same. I want you to go home today and talk to your parents more about it. What does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? The most important things can't be borrowed. And thirdly, lastly, there will be a time when it's too late. There will be a time when it's too late. John Owen wrote these words, Satan's greatest success in making, 
is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. Such sobering words in this parable where Jesus, the bridegroom after closing the doors and Jesus says, the bridegroom says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Terrifying words at the end of the age when Jesus returns. I never knew you. You were part of the church. One of the ten virgins. You had lamps. You had religion. You had, you had form. But you took no care for what was on the inside. You carried the lamp, you, you shined it up, it looked good. Others looked at you and assumed you had life and faith and an inner vibrant relationship with God, but all you had was an empty lamp. And now you're about to face the one who sees right through your lamp. And he says, truly, I, ne I don't know you. You don't want to hear those words. And you don't have to. You don't have to. Some people will look like followers of Jesus. They might have responded to an invitation somewhere, sometime made a confession with their mouth, expressed some affection for Christ, but they don't endure to the end. And this is very prevalent in our day and time. And the issue is, it's not what you did a long time ago, it's, it's where you're at right now. And if there's conviction in your heart, or perhaps even some fear rolling around in your heart, praise God that the Holy Spirit would be working. Repent and believe the gospel. Look to the cross. Oh, I've looked before, look again. And look again. And look again. And every time you look here, look again. And keep your eyes on Him. Am I ready for His return? Am I being wise by being ready? That's what He tells us. Watch. Watch, therefore. It doesn't mean stand up and look out the window at night. It doesn't mean go up on the mountain and just wait. It means to be awake, be spiritually awake, be alive and alert to Jesus Christ, to the conviction and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. If He's, if he's doing a work in your heart right now, don't resist. Surrender. Use all the means that God has given you to know Him and to love Him and to trust Him and be filled with the oil of faith and joy. And hope, and then go out and be about His mission. And when He comes, and when He comes, you will welcome Him with a brightly shining lamp, and you will hear from Him the most glorious of words, well done, good and faithful servant.